As we open this week's show, please join Bishop Rhodes and host Kyle Hyman as they pray the Regina Chaley, or the Queen of Heaven, a hymn to the Blessed Mother that's usually prayed during this special time of year, the Easter season. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Queen of Heaven, rejoice. Alleluia. The Son whom you merited to bear. Alleluia. Has risen as he said. Alleluia. Pray for us to God. Alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary. Alleluia. For the Lord has truly risen. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this all-new episode, Bishop Rhodes talks about today's Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. Hear more about the feast's relatively recent history, as well as how St. Joseph provides a model for husbands and fathers. Then it's on to this Sunday's Gospel reading, which tells us the story of the risen Jesus appearing to his disciples and calling them to become fishers of men. And finally, Bishop answers questions submitted by listeners. Submit yours by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good Bishop, and it's still Easter not the Easter octave, but the Easter season. So happy Easter. Happy Easter again, Kyle. Good to be back. Good to have you back. Also, today is the optional memorial of St. Joseph the Worker. And we've been kind of waiting to talk about this ever since you visited St. Joseph High School back in March. Because uh, you gave a great homily there <laughs> to the students and was hoping that this would be a good excuse for you to pull that back out and share that with everybody today. Yeah. It was posted on the diocesan website. You have a, a list of homilies there. Uh-huh. You have your Christmas Mass homilies there. And uh, right under that is the, the full homily if people want to read that. But maybe you could just share a little bit of that with us. Yeah, well, of course, we have these two feast days. Uh, The principal feast day every year for St. Joseph is March 19th, and that's St. Joseph, the the husband of of Mary. Uh, And then this lesser feast today, St. Joseph the Worker, which we can talk about too. Uh But going back to March 19th, uh, most years, if I'm able, I go and do a pastoral visit to St. Joseph High School in South Bend. And uh, so every year I try to think of something, you know, new Uh to talk about St. Joseph. I mean, I love St. Joseph and he's the patron saint of a lot of our parishes, but also St. Joseph High School. Well, this year, um, trying to think back to my homily is I began by really addressing the girls, Uh the young women. And... um, and basically, I said, I'm going to give you some dating advice. Right. <laughs> so, of course, when I said that, I had all their attention. Like, yeah. <laughs> who's the, the bishop's giving us dating advice? So, um, I, so it was funny. And uh, basically, I was telling them what qualities to look for in a guy before they go out with him or what they're looking for, a potential husband, what kind of qualities to look for. Right. And I used the virtues of St. Joseph that they should look for. So I focused on three virtues. First of all, as the 
gospel tells us that day, Joseph was a righteous man, a just man, which means he strived to follow God's law, to obey God in his life. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. I mean, we see that when he took Mary to be his wife, etc. He strove to, uh, to do God's will. Mm-hmm. And I said, look for a guy who has a life of faith like Joseph, who wants to do God's will, who desires to obey the commandments. Mm -hmm. So I I went on about that. Then secondly, I talked about the humility of Joseph. You know, we have no spoken words of Joseph in the gospel. He was so humble. He humbly did the will of God. He never drew attention to himself. His whole life was about taking care of Mary and Jesus. It wasn't about him. There was no selfishness in him. He provided for them. He loved them. He, he gave everything in love to, for Mary and for the child Jesus. So I said, think of the humility of Joseph and, and look for a man who's humble. I said, if you go out on a date with a guy and all he does is talk about himself and his own accomplishments and uh-huh. doesn't show any interest in you or what's going on in your life, I said, dump him right away. Yeah. Don't go out again. Right. If it's all about himself, that's not the kind of guy you want. You uh-huh. want some, what, so, uh, so they were all laughing at that. Uh-huh. So the humility of Joseph. And then the third thing I talked about was chastity. I said, Joseph was Mary's chaste spouse and he protected her chastity. He would never, uh, her virginity, he protected. Mm -hmm. He would never um, treat her as an object of his sexual desires. Mm -hmm. And I said, same, you know, look for a guy who, who's going to respect your body, who's not going to, and, and uh, who is striving to live chastity Mm -hmm. and to obey God's laws in that area. So anyhow, that kind of summarizes, and it was really interesting, the whole response. And afterwards, so many of the young women, some of the students were coming up, Bishop, thanks for that homily. And so then I'd be joking with them. I said, you know, say, okay, um, uh, there'd be some guys there. And, you know, I'd, I'd ask them if they're striving to live like St. Joseph. And if they said yes, I said, okay, you can go out with him. He's, uh-huh. you know, so we were, it was a lot of fun. But then some of the guys come up and say, Bishop, that was a tough homily. Yeah. They said, Really, Saint Joseph? Right. Uh, you know, can <laughs> the we bar try? is set. Can right. We, you set the very high bar. They said. Yeah. So uh, I said it is a high bar, but it's a good bar. Yeah. And uh, so that was basically the homily that day. Yeah. Which I am going to keep handy, and when my daughter turns. Uh, I don't know, 25, and she's allowed to start dating, uh-huh. then I'll pull that out. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> All right, here's some wisdom from Bishop yep. Rhodes. Yeah, look for a guy who who's like St. Joseph. Yeah, yep. but I, I think even, I like the idea, though, of speaking to the ladies, and then the guy's almost getting a little bit jealous and thinking, like, I, I want to be that guy, you know? like yep. Yeah, because that, that's what we're called to yeah. as men, is to to live that out. Not so that we can get a great mate for life, but so that we can live out our vocation as men. Right. And to be honest, even though the, the guys were kidding with me about Bishop, you really set a high bar. Uh-huh. They said, you're right. Yeah. We should try to be like Joseph. So I was really yeah. happy to hear that. Yeah. 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 So getting into today's particular feast of St. Joseph, the worker, how is this different than St. Joseph, the spouse? Yeah. On, on March 19th, we more focus on Joseph as the spouse of Mary and the 
earthly father of Jesus. Uh-huh. Um, but today, May 1st, we, we, we think about especially Joseph the worker. And as we know, he was a craftsman, a carpenter. And this is a relatively new feast in the church. It was only established in 1955. At that time, you know, the Communist Party was strong in many countries of the world. And, and May 1st was always their big celebration of May Day, it was called. So they celebrate workers. So there'd be celebrations in all over these countries, including in Italy and France, and uh, not just in communist countries, but in other countries where there were significant communist parties. So the Pope at the time, Pius XII, instituted the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker uh, on May 1st, 1955, and we've been celebrating it ever since. And the idea is to kind of counter, um, at that point, was to counter some of the notions of communism. And for us, it's a day to highlight the dignity of human work, which we see already in the book of Genesis, that our work is a participation in the creative work of God. Hmm. So all work has dignity. And then we focus on the fact of of St. Joseph, who was a working man. Mm -hmm. He was a carpenter. And he shows us the holiness of human labor that we work for, as Joseph did, to provide for his family. And the trade of carpentry he also taught to his his foster son, Jesus. So we can think about on, on this feast day today, Joseph and Jesus side by side in the carpentry shop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pope John Paul II wrote a, an encyclical letter on human work very early on in his pontificate called Laborem Exercens. Hmm. And there he talked about the dignity of human work and the, and the dignity and rights of workers. And he wrote that before the fall of communism in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union. But he was actually condemning situations in which that dignity and those rights of workers are violated. And we know, of course, the the rise of the solidarity labor movement, the labor union in Poland that was very inspired by Catholic social teaching and really eventually led to the the end of communism in Poland. But back to St. Joseph, he's an example of a worker who, um, he's really a model for us of the dignity of human work and also the spirituality that comes, that he was doing the work to provide for the daily needs of the Holy Family. So he's considered the the patron saint of workers, Mm -hmm. Um, teaches us the importance of hard work and how to integrate work with one's family, with one's other responsibilities as well, that one's work is centered also on on the Lord. Um, It's a participation in his creative work. And St. Joseph wasn't a workaholic. It's not like he neglected Mm. Mary and Jesus because of his work. He had a good balance. He worked with patience and with with peace and with moderation. So he's a good example. There was a certain detachment. He worked to serve God and was able to integrate work with time for his family. So it was really, we could say, an expression of his love for, for Jesus and for Mary. So it's a good day to reflect on these things and um, to ask St. Joseph to help us, to intercede for us, and for all those who work and those who also 
are looking to have good work or those who may struggle to find a, a decent paying job and yet are struggling to provide for their families. So uh, it's good to remember them in our intentions today as well. Yeah. And I think the whole idea of work being part of your vocation and that it's a calling from God, even if it's not religious work, right. that you are providing for your family, providing for yourself, hopefully being able to get enough income that you can provide for others as well. If you're able to do that because God has blessed you with extra, you know? And so to realize all of the work that we do our whole life is a gift from God and a calling from God too. And, and to hopefully we're that we're in the right field that we're doing what God is calling us to and serving the people that we need to serve in that. Yeah. And you know, and every, every work has dignity. I mean, some you might say, okay, let's say you're involved in the healthcare work. Well, mm-hmm. you know you're directly serving people. Right. There's a lot of satisfaction there. But even work that we might consider sometimes to be rather menial is also very important and mm-hmm. dignified. Those who clean streets, those sure. who, you know, whatever it is, is, is helping the community. Yeah. Um, and then there's those who perhaps are a little more prosperous and own their own businesses. They also help provide work for others, right. which is a very important thing. It's not, it sh- and it shouldn't be about just amassing a lot of profit. We need to invest back into mm-hmm. the economy by, for example, hiring more people or also being generous with the fruits of our labor, right. especially through charitable giving. Yeah. So, yeah, all of this is connected. All right. Well, one of the things I always look forward to, and I know a lot of listeners do, is you working through some of the scriptures. So coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about St. Peter before versus after Christ's passion, and we'll get to your questions as well, right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and on the special Holy Week episode of Truth and Charity that aired on April 17th, we talked about Christ's passion. We kind of walked through that, and you focused specifically on St. Peter reading that he cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. Um, He denies Jesus three times. He's not present at the crucifixion. Kind of some of these things that show his flaws, uh, flaws of his character, and maybe some mistakes as well. Uh, However, the Easter readings kind of shift a little bit. And I think with the reading that you reflected on last week of Peter being one of them that goes and discovers the empty tomb, uh, we hear more in this Sunday's gospel reading from John chapter 21, verse 1 through 19 kind of giving this more positive outlook on St. Peter as well as other great information and background to the story. So I was hoping maybe you could walk through this upcoming Sunday's reading for us. Sure. Thanks, Kyle. It's, it's John chapter 21, and it's back in Galilee, and they're at the Sea of Tiberias. By the way, John calls the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberias. It has both names. Okay. So, so it's back up there in Galilee, and, and it talks about... Um, Jesus revealing himself, the risen Jesus revealing himself again. And it's just some of the apostles who are up there. When we read the gospel, it says, together were Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, 
Zebedee's sons, we know who they are, James and John, Mm -hmm. and two others that they don't name. So it wasn't all 12, but it was most of them. And Peter said that he was going fishing. And the others said, okay, we'll go with you. And they Uh went out into the boat and they fished at night. Uh, I guess it was... um, that was a customary time for fishing on the Sea of Galilee. But in, in John's gospel, darkness always has a spiritual meaning too, oh, okay. uh, which is interesting when, when John talks about darkness. But anyhow, they don't catch anything. Uh, you know. And so when dawn came, Jesus was standing on the shore. So with, I think you're all familiar. He comes with the lightness. Right. So now we have the light again. Uh-huh. And, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. And that's not unusual. We've seen that in other appearances that they don't recognize him after the resurrection sometimes. But anyhow, Jesus said to them, children, have you caught anything to eat? Now, our Lord know, knows that they didn't. Uh, it was interesting uh, that he called them children. And they answered, no. So he said to them, cast the net over the right side of the boat, and you will find something. And then we read, so they did, they cast it, and were not able to pull it in because of the number of fish. So we have this miracle. Now, we're familiar with, in Luke's gospel, also a miraculous catch of fish at another time, but but this in John's gospel. So they obey what Jesus says. They did cast the net over the right side of the boat, and... When they did what Jesus asked, they followed his instructions, they make such a great catch that they weren't able to pull in the boat. Mm -hmm. And it's just like at the, uh, think about John's count of the wedding feast at Cana. Mary said to the waiters, do whatever he tells you. Mm -hmm. And when they did, what happened? Abundance of wine. Right. So here we have, they obey Jesus, and what do they have? An abundance of wine fish Mm -hmm. so the point is jesus provides abundantly Mm -hmm. for those who follow his directions and that's what they did now we get to um you know peter and john so notice we saw them both go to as we talked about last week to the empty tomb easter sunday morning but now it says so the disciple whom jesus loved again that's john Uh said to peter it is the lord So he's the one who at the tomb saw and believed. And now he's the first one to recognize Mm. that the guy who was standing on the shore who told them to cast the net over the right side of the boat was Jesus. Uh And so John, again, the beloved disciple, he's the first one to have that spiritual insight that this is Jesus. So what does Peter do? It says, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He heard what John said. Mm -hmm. He tucked in his garment, for he was lightly clad, and jumped into the sea. Now, I I have to laugh so often with with Peter because he can be so impetuous, almost (laughs) comical. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he tucked in his garment. I guess he wanted to be, you know, presentable to Uh the Lord. (laughs) Uh, he was lightly clad and and then he jumped into the sea, even though he was fully dressed. Uh So he was excited. He wanted to see Jesus. He jumped into the sea. I kind of like that about his eagerness. Uh, and he swims to shore 
he doesn't wait for the others. I no. mean, he's just so excited. We're not going to um, paddle in the boat. Right. The others stay in the yeah. boat. It says the deci- other disciples came in the boat, for they were not far from shore, only about 100 yards, dragging the net with the fish. But here you have Peter out swimming, so eager to see the Lord Jesus. Then it says, when they climbed out on shore, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. That's kind of significant, that detail, the charcoal fire, because it remember it was at the charcoal fire where Peter had denied mm-hmm. Jesus after Jesus was arrested, and uh-huh. he denied Jesus three times. So anyhow, we continue, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you just caught. And it says, so Simon Peter went over and dragged the net ashore full of 153 large fish. So Peter obeyed Jesus's command. It was pretty extraordinary when you think he's dragging this, this net ashore by himself with 153 large fish yeah. in it. I mean, it's interesting that, that John would, St. John would give us the number. It's generally seen as a sign of the universality of the mission of the disciples because there were known to be 153 different species of fish in mm. the world. So it's kind of like symbolic of all, all humanity. Okay. Um, and it says that even though there were so many fish, the net was not torn. It kind of reminds us, remember how Jesus' tunic was not torn Mm -hmm. when he was crucified. And it's kind of an idea that all the disciples of Jesus are to be one flock. The untorn net, like the untorn tunic of Jesus on Good Friday, symbolizes the unity of the church, Mm -hmm. the unity of his disciples. And then Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? Because they realized it was the Lord. I Uh mean, John said, you know, it is the Lord. Uh And then it says, Jesus came over and took the bread and gave it to them. And in like manner, the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to his disciples after being raised from the dead. Notice the Eucharistic overtones here. Mm -hmm. Jesus took the bread and gave it to them, and in the like manner, the fish. It's the same as when he multiplied the loaves and the fish, that great miracle, but it's the same gesture that he used at the Last Supper. So most scripture scholars will connect the Eucharist to this scene. Mm -hmm. I think what's really important here in this whole thing is that Jesus is calling the disciples to be fishers of men. They are to go forth, to bear witness to him, just like they go out fishing. They're not going to be successful without Jesus's assistance, without his grace. They're not going to catch anything. But if they're obedient to him and they cooperate with the Holy Spirit, they'll bring in a lot of people. They'll bring a lot of people to faith in Jesus and bring a lot into the church. And there'll be a great catch. That's the fundamental message of of this this story. 
But then that's not the end of the... Oh, by the way, it says this was the third time Jesus was revealed to his disciples after being raised from the dead. Uh Um, We know of that first appearance when Thomas wasn't there that first Easter night. And then we know the second appearance when Thomas was there and Mm -hmm. he put his hands into Jesus's wounds. And then this is the third time. It's not really counting his appearance to Mary Magdalene. This is just referring to the times where Jesus appeared to the disciples as a group. Uh So then it says when they had finished breakfast, and this is where we really get focused on Peter. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Okay, remember that charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest. There was the charcoal fire and three times Peter denied him. Uh So here on the side of the sea, charcoal fire and three times jesus is going to ask peter do you love me and notice he doesn't call him peter i think this is significant Mm. he goes back to his old name simon this is the name he was before becoming a disciple before jesus made him peter before jesus made him the rock yeah he goes back to ask him do you love me? And of course, the answer is, Simon Peter answered him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. So this happens three times, Jesus asked that question, because Peter had denied him three times. And three times, Peter answered, you know that I love you. And after each profession of love from Peter, Jesus assigns him a responsibility as the shepherd of his sheep. The first time he says to him, feed my lambs. The second time he says to him, tend my sheep. And then the third time, feed my sheep. So he's the one that God's appointing. Jesus is appointing to lead and govern his people. But in order to do so, there's something first, and that is to be a disciple who loves the master. Hmm. That's why at the very end of this gospel, after Jesus predicted the kind of death that that Peter would have, what did Jesus say to him? He said, follow me. Those were the first words when he first called Simon Peter, the fisherman. Now here, it's kind of like this is a rebirth of Peter. Wow professes his love and jesus goes back and tells him what he said at the very beginning follow me in other words you can't be the leader you can't be the good shepherd of the church you can't be the first pope unless you're first my disciple who loves me so i think that's very beautiful to think about because that's at the heart of discipleship and it's the at the heart must be at the heart of leadership Mm -hmm. in the church is this personal love for Jesus. And after the threefold profession of love, what does Jesus say? He says, amen, amen, I say to you. When you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
St. John says, he said this signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Hmm. And Peter would. He would stretch out his hands. That's crucifixion. Yeah. And we know he was martyred by crucifixion during the persecution of the Emperor Nero, the persecution of Christians in Rome around the year 65, 66 AD. So Peter, who denied Christ, would end up giving his life for Christ. He would be a martyr in Rome. He would lay down his life for him. So it's really a very beautiful gospel for us to think about. A lot of food for thought about um, how Peter was given the primacy. He was given leadership, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. But it was after he professed his love. And that's so essential. I say that to our priests, to our seminarians, and I say it to myself. We're disciples first, Mm -hmm. following the master with love before we can lead others, before we can be shepherds. And that we see in the example of Simon Peter, who was a sinner like the rest of us, but who received Christ's mercy, was repentant, and um, was renewed in his love. Yeah. Well, I think we're all going to get more out of Sunday's gospel <laughs> here at Mass. So thank you so much on that for that reflection. That was so great. Uh, if anybody has any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. We're a little light on questions right now, so feel free to submit any questions that you might have. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have questions about what we know when we're in heaven and why someone should convert and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman. I'll be asking the questions that you have submitted for Bishop to answer. And our first question comes from Jessica Reifenberg from St. Charles Parish in Fort Wayne who asked, When you die and go to your respective place, do you know if the people that have passed before you are in heaven, hell, or purgatory? Well, first of all, if we're in heaven, it's the communion of saints. So we would know everyone else who's in heaven. So that's for sure. Um, And I believe in purgatory as well. Um, That's a good speculative question. I would have to think about that some more. I, I would say with more certainty, that in heaven, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we don't become all-knowing if no. we make it to heaven. Right, right. But what I think of when I think of the communion of saints in heaven is there is this perfect communion with God and with others who are in heaven. So there would have to be that knowledge of others who are in heaven with us. Sure. Yeah. All right. Another listener said, I have preconceived ideas slash beliefs about the so-called rituals that Catholics practice. I don't know if I can ever overcome that. Why do I need to convert if I believe in Christ? Well, thank you for that question. Um, I think if you have preconceived ideas about Catholic rituals, the most important thing would really be to study, find out, if those ideas are correct or not. Mm. Um, I mean, oftentimes we can have preconceived ideas, but they're not true. So we should always be seeking the truth. 
So if you're wondering about some of the rituals, I presume they're referring maybe to the sacraments or to the mass, I would encourage you to, to talk to someone, a priest or a well-educated Catholic, or just do your own reading. I would recommend the Catechism of the Catholic Church mm -hmm. to learn about the Catholic liturgy or the seven sacraments. Then you know authentically, okay, this is what the Catholic Church teaches. This right. is what they're doing mm -hmm. when they go to Mass. Because we should admit that if we have preconceived ideas and we really haven't studied carefully, those ideas might be wrong or erroneous. As far as needing to convert, the way I would answer that is this. Every person, and, and this, this uh, listener said that he or she believes in Christ, and that's so fundamental. But then to search for where, in what community, one wishes to belong as a disciple of Christ. Hmm. One needs to pray. Uh, obviously, I would say the, the reason why becoming Catholic would be important is that we believe that um, the Catholic Church has guarded and kept the fullness of the truth of the faith, that the Church is guided by the Holy Spirit through the magisterium, the Pope, and the bishops, and has preserved the truth of the gospel, the deposit of faith in its totality. Hmm. So that would be one reason for becoming Catholic. Another reason is all of the means of grace that Jesus has left, the fullness of the means of grace that he has left to us are found in the Catholic Church, specifically the Holy Eucharist and all the sacraments by which God's life and love are communicated to us. So we believe that other Christian communities also are obviously related and are brothers and sisters in Christ, but would not have the totality, would not have the fullness of the truth and all the means that Christ has given us, the means of grace that we have in all seven sacraments. So if one comes to belief in that, then one should become Catholic mm -hmm. because one would want to have that assurance and all those opportunities to receive God's life in the various sacraments. Right. All right. Aaron Heckber from St. Jude Parish in Fort Wayne said, I've heard of a parish outside the diocese that didn't want to baptize an infant in the Lenten season. Should infants be baptized during Lent? If not, why? Well, the Code of Canon Law says that infants should be baptized within the first weeks after birth. Okay. So, so yes, they can be baptized in the Lenten season. I mean, if a if someone has a baby right before Lent begins, I don't think it's a good idea to wait another 40, 50 days mm -hmm. to have the child baptized. The child should be baptized in Lent. There's no problem with baptizing an infant during the Lenten season. Maybe avoid Good Friday unless it's an emergency, right, but otherwise... Right. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't baptize on Good Friday unless it was danger of death. Right. right. All right. Well, you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have some more questions like one about same-sex couples adopting children. And what is Bishop reading? And more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. 
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we are asking questions that you have submitted for Bishop to answer. Uh, first question of this segment is, would the church object to a same-sex couple in a chase committed long-term relationship adopting children? If so, why? That's an interesting question. Usually the question comes without the word chaste in it. Uh In other words, they'll say, would the church object to a same-sex couple who are married or in a long-term relationship adopting children? The answer Uh is we would object. Um, But even in this case, if they're living a chaste life, the issue would be what is ideal is a child should have a father and a mother. So that would be what we would promote. There are certain things about fatherhood, about motherhood, that a child are most beneficial to Mm -hmm. a child, to have the complementary aspects of fatherhood and motherhood to be raised in that situation. The problem with a um, being adopted by a same-sex married couple that's not chaste is because it's also not good example mm-hmm. for the raising of a child. But in this case, they're saying a same-sex couple in a chaste long-term relationship. I think that does make it a better situation, obviously. However, you still lack the the two different, uh, you know, having a mother and father, which is is really the ideal. All right, Diane Hunter from St. Charles Parish in Fort Wayne asked an interesting question. Did Mary understand her own sinlessness, and how might she have understood herself in that respect? That's an interesting speculative question, <laughs> uh, Diane. Well, the church has, has no teaching on this point about Mary's knowledge or understanding of her own sinlessness her immaculate conception. So I think we can only speculate. I mean, you ask how might she have understood herself in that respect? She was very humble, Mm -hmm. but I would guess that if she was examining her conscience, she wouldn't come up with any sin. (laughs) Um, But I don't think she would have had the pride. She wouldn't have any pride to say like, that she wouldn't sin in the future or couldn't sin. Mm. I mean, I think she was too humble to think of herself that way. We know she never sinned, Mm -hmm. but, uh, but that's an interesting question. And uh, again, how she understood her own sinlessness is, is kind of mysterious and the church doesn't have any, any teaching on that. I guess at one point when the angel comes to her, she would have known that, the angel said that she was full of grace. How she would have interpreted that, we don't know. But right. at least she had the same messages that we're able to, to right. read now. But right, interesting. Our next listener submitted question is, how do we discuss the sexual abuse crisis with those who have left or are considering leaving the church because of it? Well, I, I've discussed the sexual abuse crisis with such people. And well, I would say we, we discuss it with total honesty about the truth of what happened. I don't, we can't like hide the truth. I mean, we've had this terrible tragedy where children or young people have been abused by clergy. But then I would go a step further and say, but this isn't the whole church. I mean, the church is a community of saints and sinners. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
and really the church is Christ's church. Uh, yeah, human beings have made a mess of things, but it's still Christ's church. Mm -hmm. He's still the head of the church. The church is holy because the head of the church is the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ himself. And the Holy Spirit is the soul of the church. And the church has all the means of salvation, the sacraments. So to leave because of sinful members, even sinful clergy, one is leaving all the good, all the treasures uh, separating from the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. The thing is, I think, to remain in the church and to help eradicate evil from mm -hmm. the church. And that begins with each one of us because we're all sinners. We all are undeserving of God's love and mercy, but he's come to redeem us. But I think the, uh, the, the most important thing is that our faith is in Christ and it's, and we believe in the church that he gave us, that he established on the rock of St. Peter uh, that has the succession of the apostles, that has the gifts of the Holy Eucharist, that has Mary as our mother. And though some have been unfaithful and have committed heinous crimes, we recognize for those crimes for what they are. But our faith is, is not in in human beings. Our faith is in Christ, our Redeemer. Mm -hmm. So I would just encourage them to make that distinction between the Holy Church of God and sinful members who um, have betrayed, really, their vocations. And not to give up, you know. There have been periods throughout church history where corruption has entered into uh, church history in the life of the church. But then there's always been reforms that took mm -hmm. place. So I think we're in that stage right now where there was this evil, what Paul VI called the smoke of Satan entering into the church. Mm -hmm. And now we must do everything possible to eradicate it. For the past 17 years since the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People in the year 2002, we've made great strides um, in this area of handling abuse cases better, especially being more uh, providing help and healing for victims and, um, and being transparent about this problem and not trying to cover it up. It's done terrible damage, number one, to the victims, but then to the whole community. We just can't give up. I mean, we just have to continue to purify the church and uh, to purify the priesthood. There should be no room in the priesthood for a man who would abuse a child. Hmm. And uh, uh, so anyhow, I have a lot of confidence. I think we've made great strides the last 17 years and um, our children are safe. We have safe environments in our parishes and schools, all kinds of things in place. And I think when I look at our seminarians and and future priests, I see men who are healthy, and I think it shows that we're that the reform is is uh, is happening and is ongoing. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that. Finally, uh, we haven't had this question in a while. What book are you currently reading, or would recommend? Well, you know, during Holy Week, uh, I was reading the book entitled "The Way of Trust and Love." Okay. And it's by Father Jacques Philippe. 
He's a priest of the community of the Beatitudes hmm. in France, and it's basically on the spirituality of St. Therese of Lisieux, the little way, which is all about trust uh-huh. in God and abandonment to God. And uh, so that was a very fruitful... I, this past year, I've been reading a lot of stuff on St. Therese. For some reason, she's become a new close friend in heaven. Huh. So uh, someone gave me uh, this little book. It's really a retreat, The Way of Trust and Love. Okay. It's his retreat talks. So I kind of use that for a little mini retreat during Holy Week. Huh. And I'm just about finished it. And uh, I recommend it. It's very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure, Kyle. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.